We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by BetOnline.ag. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. And today we're going to, um, in the first half, cover a, a Lakers what if, uh, kind of a great all-time if this had gone that way, uh, hypothetical moment. And then in the second half, we'll continue our rewatch of The Wire, uh, season one, episode three. So... In the summer of 2009, Lakers had just won 65 games, just won an NBA championship, uh, beating the Orlando Magic in five games. Super fun team. Kobe's first without Shaq, his fourth overall. Uh, Powell, Lamar, uh, that fast bench. He had Jordan Farmar and Shannon Brown, and they're just really fun team. And one of my favorite all-time Lakers role players. I can't believe he was only with the team for a year and a half. It seemed like so much longer than that. But I loved Trevor Ariza. Uh, he was he was young. He was fun. He was an uh, you know great athlete, really good defender. Um, Kobe really took him under his wing, made some big time plays in the playoffs, jumping passing lanes. Uh, he hit a big three. I remember in one of the games in Orlando, uh, I, I just loved me some Trevor Ariza. Uh, over that summer, Lakers let him walk, right? And brought in Ron Artest, now Meta World Peace, in what was essentially a swap, right? With the Houston Rockets. Yeah. So I think it's important to lay the context too. 
they didn't necessarily just let him walk. They wanted to bring him back. Mitch Kupchak, mm-hmm. though, I thought did the right thing in terms of setting the market for him. And mm-hmm. Ariza had just shown his value to the Lakers in an immense way, right? And so mm-hmm. you had mentioned sort of jumping the passing lanes. He had two critical steals in that Denver series that really helped turn that series in the Lakers' favor and won them some games, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I don't have the three-point shooting numbers in front of me, but Ariza had an unseasonably hot postseason Mm -hmm. for him. Yeah, when we think of him now, we think of him as this like 3 and D guy for much of his career. But at that point, he hadn't really developed the three part. No, he was much more of a slasher defender type. And he fit into the mold that I feel like that younger version of the Lakers wanted to play. Remember, Ariza was also a key contributor in 2008 before he got hurt, right? Mm -hmm. And he, along with young leg Bynum and sort of this rejuvenated Kobe after the like, trade me, uh, I'd rather Mm -hmm. play on Pluto stuff, the Lakers held firm with him. And then even when the Lakers made the trade and got Pal Gasol, the Lakers were playing faster. You had mentioned Jordan Farmar and Sasha Vujicic, and they had a, a lot of younger guys who they were leaning on, and the profile of their team was much more, let's get out and take advantage of our athleticism out in the open court than it was like the three-peat era Lakers team that was much more of a pounding ground sort of team. That that team could get out and run too with a much younger version of Kobe, but the 2008-2009 Lakers, their profile was much more fast-paced and Ariza fit right in with that. And, and so the Lakers wanted to bring him back and Mitch Kupchak said, we think you're worth about the mid-level exception. Right. If you can mm-hmm. get more than that, bring it back and we'll sure. talk some more. And Lakers old friend Aaron Mintz, I don't think, uh-huh. took too kindly to the, that. And it sort of started a little bit of a feud between them. Mm-hmm. It did. And in that time, the Lakers, uh, Ron Artest became available for the mid-level exception, which was probably below market value for him. He, he would have been able to get a bigger contract somewhere else at that point. It's easy, you know, after the fact to view, you know, the next five years of Ariza's career were probably better than the next five years of Artest slash Meta's career. But at that time, when he signed the contract from the short term, like, Meadow was still the borderline all-star type of guy. Yes. Uh, he was coming from Houston, and which is where Ariza ended up. And so when we signed, when we signed our test, I'm going to call him our test for this episode. Ron, he's always Ron to me. I know he's, he's yeah, yeah. Meadow, but I mean, he's always right. Ron yeah, yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, so Lakers sign him. I want to talk about 2010. I'm doing this series for the Athletic. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun rewatching this and uh, you know seeing how how it fit in. I would argue that the next five years of the Lakers with Ariza would have been better than with with Artest. But I would also argue that 
we don't win in 2010 with Ariza instead of our test because our test was uniquely built for the physicality of that series and really did a great job of limiting Pierce in ways that nullified Pierce's strengths, where I'm not sure that Ariza would have been able to do that. But Ariza was a very good defender. I think it's more of a styles make fights yeah. type of thing. I'm curious, do you think that Ariza would have been able to fill that role to the degree where we would have won a title? It's hard to say. The Lakers would have been a fundamentally different team, I think, with Ariza. You and I had talked a little bit earlier this year about the Lakers needing a little bit more dog in them this season. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. thought that like the Marquise Morris signing helped sure. with that, right? Mm -hmm. That 2009 Lakers team was, the dog was Kobe. The dog was Fisher. They did not mm -hmm. necessarily have another dog in them. Powell was the infamous like black swan quote that Kobe had ab sure. about Powell, right? Where he was trying to bring that dog out of him a little bit more often. Bynum was always seen as like mercurial and someone whose head and effort could wax and wane. But our test was that dog. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ariza was more of like a cheetah or a gazelle, mm -hmm. right? Like he had right. some fight in him. But he was just a different type of player. He was more athlete. He was more like speed. And he would be effective that that way. I do think that um, from a matchup standpoint, our test was very well suited for that Celtics series. And I think that it made it much more of an even playing field in terms of the types of personality and physicality you needed to bring to that series in order to win. That doesn't mean the Lakers could not have won with a healthy Ariza. Right. I think they could could have. I do think, though, that you ultimately then probably have to rely on Kobe more for a defensive position, and you likely see switched matchups where— mm -hmm. in, in that series, if you remember, in 2010, Kobe guarded Rondo— a lot mm -hmm. and sagged way off of him. He took Ray Allen in game two a bit because he got hot, but yeah, yeah, yeah. right. But Fisher guarded Ray Allen a lot. And then that put Ron on Paul Pierce in this sort of matchup. You probably have to play it a little bit more traditional or you might mm -hmm. see more Kobe on Pierce. Mm -hmm. And Ariza chasing Rondo. Or, and or Ariza chasing Ray, chasing Allen, around. Ray yeah. Allen around and then Fisher defending his position a lot more. Mm -hmm. And right. how that goes, I'm not exactly sure, right? You could see scenarios where that works in the Lakers' favor, but it's also not as natural as I think that it played out with Kobe being able to sort of rest more defensively and play a little bit more free safety, which gave him a little bit more energy to attack a vicious Boston defense, which I think that he needed those those extra legs throughout the course of the series. Very much so. Boston's strategy was really to get the ball out of Kobe's hands if Kendrick Perkins wasn't on the floor. You had Big Baby Davis getting a lot of minutes. Rasheed Wallace was always killing the Lakers with whatever uniform he was wearing. And, and that series oh, was no exception. Um, and so, yeah, Kobe was getting... Kobe was drawing the attention of two for most of that series. And to do that and have to defend 
elite wings. Like he can do it, and he, you know, he he did it for stretches for sure. But I think that from a legs perspective, and and yeah, just that like that dog that in two thousand nine we didn't really run into a team where that was necessary, where you needed to have that attribute to beat them. But Boston was one of those teams. Boston KG got hurt in the playoffs in two thousand nine, and so we, we didn't run into one of those teams. But I I, I do think that it also turned kind of the Lakers physicality in 2008 wasn't enough. Uh, part of that being Bynum not being, being able to play. Yeah. So it pushed Powell to the five, Lamar to the four. All of a sudden you're not quite as physical, right? I'd, I'd argue Bynum is important in this respect too, but the Lakers actually won that series in a lot of respects with physicality, right? That game seven, yeah, we yes. got freaking hundred offensive rebounds, right? And, oh, and man. they were just crashing the boards. And so like just the combined strength of everybody in that starting lineup was big and or strong for their position. Bynum yeah. was big for a five. Odom or uh, uh, Powell was big for a four. Artest, Fish, Kobe. Those are all like OG, like veteran strength type of guys. Well, it's interesting too, just to look back, like that was only, that was 10 years ago, a decade. It was just a decade ago. And think about how different the league was back then and, and what the lineups looked like. Like Bynum and Powell wasn't even like they were viewed as big, right? But it wasn't much different than what the Celtics were doing with KG playing power forward. Fast forward 10 years and KG is probably almost exclusively a center. Mm-hmm. Powell would always would exclusively be a center. And everyone would probably move up a position. The interesting thing is, is that if you look at some of the playoff series from both 2009 and 2010, the Lakers probably would have been better off mixing and matching Ariza and Artest based off of different playoff opponents that they faced over the course of both of those years, 100%, right? Because they were so, so different, right? Like they they would have complemented each other, right? Like stylistically uh, in terms of Yeah, their- like I mean- like it would have been great to have um, our test to defend Carmelo Anthony uh-huh. in that 2009 sure. series. Like we talked about Ariza's um, presence defensively in terms of jumping passing lanes and those big steals that he got, but Carmelo was a problem, right? Right. And then our test could guard those triple threat guys, right? Like that's what Melo was. That's what Paul Pierce was. The guys who would like get in triple threat, dip their shoulder, put their foot to try to create space. And then he'd still crowd him because he wouldn't give up any, any, uh, ground on that. Whereas Ariza could, would get pushed off of his spot. Yeah. And Ron had such good hands. Oh, yeah. Right? The best. And, and the best. So if you tried to muscle him, you couldn't move him off of his spot. And, and so the space that those type of power wings were used to creating, when they did not create that, Ron had such good hands to sort of reach in and tie you up or poke the ball away. He was so good at that. Now, flip to 2010, and Ron had a huge offensive rebound put back against the Suns, mm-hmm. if you remember. But if you look at that series, it might have been good to have Trevor Ariza in that series against a more up-tempo Suns team that played small. You had guys like Grant Hill on the wing, and he could have probably checked Steve Nash for some possessions. Like There would have been much more defensive versatility on the wing with a player like Ariza versus those Suns teams, mm-hmm. even though Ron had probably the series-changing play in that series as well. 
And so it's interesting how these two players made such crucial plays in the championship seasons that they were a part of, but you could also easily see how the other guy would have been super important right. in other series as well. Absolutely. So I think we're in agreement in 2010, or at least the Boston series, right? That that, yeah. that yeah. our test was a, a better matchup in that particular series. Going forward, Ariza had the better, you know, next four or five years, Ron was getting older and Ariza was entering his prime. Would the difference between having Ariza versus Artest in those years, would that have been enough to win another title? Would that have been enough to make a difference in ultimately how any of those seasons ended? I would have been interested to see him in 2011, the next season, Mm -hmm. the season that they got swept by the Mavs. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure if he is like an elite difference maker in that series, but I do think that Ron's shooting had fallen off to the point Mm -hmm. in 2011 that it was problematic Mm -hmm. and his foot Foot speed speed. Mm -hmm. and his foot speed was a problem Mm -hmm. in that Mavs series, especially, especially in transition defense, right? Because Ron became such a limited offensive player that Phil often stuck him in the corner Mm -hmm. offensively and he would shoot those corner threes and when they would miss, he had the longest run right. to transition from offense to defense. And I feel like in a couple of series, that foot speed showed up, especially versus a Mavs team that was really strategically running out against the Lakers right. to get open threes and semi-transition. That, that was absolutely the case. And Ariza would have been significantly better than, than Artest in that series. Uh, he just... Not enough to swing a four-game sweep. Uh, so while I, I do think the Lakers would have been better that year and over the next couple of years with Ariza, I think ultimately the Lakers do win a title with Artest as they did in 2010 and probably mm-hmm. not with Ariza, or at least that's my guess. Uh, you can make a case for it, but I, I, I'd say no. And the Lakers would have been better in the f- forthcoming years, but uh, not good enough, I think, to win a title in 2011 or 2012. And uh, then then we went to the, the Dwight years. One last thing, just shout out to Trevor Ariza, who is still in the league. Yeah. This dude is still in the league. Yeah. I, I just wanted to point that out. He was languishing some, but then he ended up in Portland this year and has been a nice contributor for them. So so just shout out to our guy, TA, man, who is still doing this thing. That's right, man. One of my favorite all-time Laker role players, only for, here for a year and a half. All right, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about episode three of The Wire. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on, or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today and receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, so episode three opens up where they are in uh, Deputy Commissioner Burrell's office. And it's Burrell, Lieutenant Daniels, and a new character, uh, Stanislav Valchek. And Valchek runs, uh, he, he runs his own, he's a very powerful man in his world. And he 
runs the Southeastern District. He's the district commander, and he happens to be the father-in-law of Roland Przybyluski, who was one of the characters in the in episode two, one of the dummies who decided to go down to the terrace, start some things, and uh, end up getting the police cruiser, you know, bombed out and just created a whole mess. So Daniels wants him taken off of uh, on-duty police work and stuck in the office. Valchek thinks that's an admission of guilt, you know, before the internal investigation. The the, the long and short of it is, is that they're kind of doing some horse trading. And Mm -hmm. the nature of the whole conversation is really about how things look. So how do you take kind of the individual players in this scene and what their angles are? It's interesting, right? Daniels is clearly negotiating from a position of strength, and he knows it. And so he is both showing that strength, but still slow playing his hand Mm -hmm. a little bit, right? And so he is putting feelers out there and showing people and showing the players in the room, I am willing to take this all the way up and say, get this dude out of here. But he leaves the door cracked open Mm -hmm. enough to sort of leverage that position in order to get some of the things that that he wants. It's a negotiation, right? right? It's like, uh, I I really don't want this guy, but you know, if uh, it's it's, it's like, if I can, and the word they end up using is suction, right? Like he got suction with Valchek, which means that he's got some, and that was something he was lamenting in the previous episode is that, and and where where his wife was like you know you can't lose if you don't play the game is rigged well yeah. now he's got somebody powerful on his side and that's how that scene ends right is that he scratches Valchek's yeah. back and he's got uh got him on his side so with Daniel specifically where does that put him at, at this point well i think that it puts him in a position where he sort of understands that he is gaining a bit of a foothold and gaining a, a little bit of leverage overall in his position, if not necessarily for this specific case, but for the future. Mm-hmm. And I think Daniels is one of those people who always is trying to see the big picture, even if he is can sometimes get caught up in the everyday of being good police, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's part of the balance that we've seen with Daniels through the first three episodes of this series. And it's what we've talked about to this point, right? Where he sort of like, no, I'm going to really stick to chain of command. I've got to listen to my bosses on this. But then on the flip side, he is someone who is angling for better men to serve on this unit. He is looking for more resources in order to do the best police work that he can. And he is always trying to sort of walk both sides of the fence a little bit. And I think when he leaves this room, he sort of understands, aha, like, even if this doesn't work out for me with this specific case, I've got something in terms of this suction with Valchek now. So we go from there and we go to the actual police, right? The guy, the folks who are doing actual police work. Uh, and that's being spearheaded by McNulty and Greggs. And we kind of learn a little more about Lester Freeman. Up to this point, Lester Freeman's been the guy listening to jazz and painting miniature furniture uh, for for dollhouses. And uh, he's clearly a man of culture. But the one thing that we have not seen him particularly interested in at this point is police work. And uh, he overhears Greggs and McNulty are 
like we don't even have a picture of Avon Barksdale and they talk, they're talking about, all right, well, what do we know? Kind of trying to figure out the different leads that they can get. And they mentioned that he fought golden gloves, right? In boxing. And this kind of perks Lester Freeman's interest. And he, he gets up and he walks out, right? And again, you know, Greg's and McNulty are kind of like, okay, what's going on here? He heads down to a, a boxing gym, right? Where he's clearly knows the guy who's been running that place. This is an older gentleman who's likely been running this place for years, comes back and delivers a, a, a poster promoting a fight that Avon Barksdale was in. A young Avon Barksdale, but it's the first picture yeah. that they've had of him overall. One, one thing I love about that scene is that it portrays Lester Freeman as this guy who's kind of just over his job and is like clearly talented, clearly has, you know, smart guy with something to offer, but is just not interested at all. But he's seemingly inspired by these two Cops that are actually trying to do good police work. I think there, there's something to be said really in, in overall type of jobs and workplaces. Like when other people bring that enthusiasm for their work, it can't help but be infectious. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. Like I also viewed that as sort of I'm someone who knows some things, mm -hmm. right? And he sort of had seen no reason to this point to necessarily show what he knew, mm -hmm. right? Like, so clearly he's got an investigative mind. You see this later in the episode as well, which we'll get to where he's in the stash house, right? Mm -hmm. After the raid. And he's sort of already starting to look around for more clues. Mm -hmm. And you can already see that he has some instincts mm -hmm. for good police work, which is that the foundation for that is laid with this poster incident, right? right? Where, where he brings back this picture. But I sort of see him as someone who was just like, oh, well, tell me when I need to come in, coach. Mm -hmm. Like he is sort of that sniper off of the bench and is sort of <laughs> yeah. just like, oh, well, Williams, you, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, well, let me know when we need a three. Uh -huh. And then you can call my number and I'll come in the game. And that conversation between McNulty and Kima was sort of his moment to get in the game again and show like, ah, yeah, like I'll flex for y'all mm -hmm. one time and show you that I could still hit that buzzer beater. Uh -huh. And it was just because this is a rewatch and sort of us knowing sure. where these characters go, mm -hmm. it was great to just sort of recall the origin story yeah, of Lester Freeman. Of Lester. Yeah, for sure. So we go from there and uh, Daniels ends up telling the team that they're going to do some buy busts, right? Which is basically these low level street dealers that, you know, they're going to arrest some folks, get some drugs and some money on the table for the photo op. And this is all being motivated by Deputy Commissioner Barrett. Right. And these are he's more politician than cop, much more politician than cop. This pisses off McNulty to no end, who really wants a legit investigation on this guy that's he thinks has dropped 10 to 12 bodies over the last year and is controlling half of West Baltimore's drug trade. And so McNulty being on the all I care about is the police work side. This is going to piss him off, this type of thing. Right. After that, it we, we cut to the Barksdales. Right. And we're in the pit with D'Angelo. Uh, Wallace and Bodie. And 
Bodie and Wallace are playing checkers with a chess set, right? And so they're treating the pieces as checkers. And uh, D'Angelo's like, what the hell are you doing here? Let me teach you how to play chess, right? And he goes and explains what each piece does. Uh, And it's a great scene. It's one of the iconic scenes of, of season one. And the very on the nose analogy, right, is that it's it's comparable to what the game is, right, and of yeah. what they're doing, right? And so Avon Barksdale is the king, Stringer Bell is the queen, the most powerful piece that can kind of go on the offensive and can do what they want. Um, you've got the, the rooks or the stash, right? And then you get to the pawns, right? And the pawns, uh, they, they are on the front lines, they're disposable, and they're in they're the, the soldiers. They're the soldiers. They're the ones in the most danger. And they can become the queen, though, if they advance all the way to the other side of the board. And Bodhi, uh, the scene ends with like, you know, D'Angelo talking about how, you know, those guys get taken out all the time. And he's like, well, unless you're a smart ass pawn, right? Because that's obviously how Bodhi sees himself, right? Is that he's going to be that's right. the pawn that makes it to the other side of the chessboard. So uh, I, I thought that in both, I thought that both scenes, oftentimes in, in the wire, when you see a scene with the cops, not long after you're going to see a scene with the Barksdales or with other parties that get involved in this in the show that are kind of mirror images of each other and i thought that that was right. that was one of them what was your take of that whole that whole setup well i just think that from just from the standpoint of like this is the wire and there is an intelligence behind the writing and the scene setting and an understanding that this is meaningful in the moment even when you're watching it for the first time. Mm -hmm. And there is this idea of how smart the characters are, regardless of their lot in life and their ability to play out these metaphors in a way to apply things that are not a part of their world to their world. And so when D'Angelo is explaining what the pieces are and He's just like, this is the king. Like the king don't got to move. Right. He and but he can move in any direction that that he wants. Then that's when Bodhi chimes in and it's like, oh, well, you know, that's like your uncle. And then when they do say, Well, the queen can do whatever she wants, and it's just like, oh, well, that's like stringer. And then it's like, this is the castle. Castle moves this way and it moves that way, goes as far as it wants, and there's like, that's like the stash. And it's mm-hmm. like, the stash don't move, and it's just like Bro, we just how many it. times we moved the stash this week? <laughs> right, we moved right. it three or four times, right? And every because and D'Angelo was saying like just like just like when the stash moved, you got to move it with some muscle. So he is using the chess as a metaphor for their lives to make them understand what the game is, right? Mm-hmm. And there are levels to that. Right. And that's one of the things that I truly appreciate about the show. And it's just great to sort of watch the writing and the way that this is set up for us play out that way. So that scene illustrates that D'Angelo can see things from a big picture type of perspective, but maybe can't zoom in enough on the details. And that's illustrated by throughout this episode, there is a couple dudes in a van sitting across the street, kind of scoping out this whole operation, right? You see one guy who is my favorite TV character in any show of all time, Omar Little, talking about how sloppy they are, right? He, He gets a scope of their whole operation, how they do things. They find out that the stash house is the third door on the left. 
night or two later or later in the week, right? They've been doing this for a few days. They even spot that the cops are spying on the, uh, are yeah. on the Barksdales are kind of on them, right? Uh, later in the week, D'Angelo decides he's going to be the one who goes out and gets sandwiches for people, even though he's the leader, right? And while he's gone, Omar and his crew decide to hit the stash house. Even more important than that, he leaves right when the re-up is coming. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? Thank you. And so yes. they know, he knows the re-up is coming. They're like, re-up's late. And then they're like, go tell Wallace to hit him on the beeper and like, let's get it here. Oh, and by the way, is anyone hungry? Right. Right? It's like, I'm about to bounce. Right. You're not focused so he's on- he's totally yeah. not putting- he is not seeing the big picture in that point, right? He's almost like the player who is so smart but can't execute. And so he becomes a coach. Right. Right. And so you're the guy who's just like, oh, yeah, like go over there and set that down screen and then come around. Uh-huh. And it's just like, well, when you were playing, how come you weren't yeah, doing you that? Didn't it's, close it's, out. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's like watching Charles Barkley talk about how important defense is. On like inside the NBA, right? It's just like, come on, bro. Like, where were you playing defense? That's right. That yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, so Omar and his crew ambush the stash house, and the first guy is deciding he's not going to tell where it is. So Omar shoots him with his shotgun in the knee. Right. Next dude is a little more willing to let him know where the stash is. They get the stash, but in the process of that, one of Omar's boys, uh, part of his crew calls out his name and Omar is visibly upset at him because that's for obvious reasons against the rules. But they end up coming away with the stash and they uh and so now D'Angelo gets back and like, oh what the what the heck is uh is going on? Yeah, we find out later that this Brandon is is the uh the guy who said that to Omar and he'll be he'll be a character in the next couple episodes. So th- this is again indicative of of D'Angelo's Right. Sloppiness. But it's also indicative of this guy robs drug dealers. That is what Omar yeah, and his crew do for a living. That is a dangerous profession. And the more it, it goes back to this underlying theme of the show and where Omar is one end of this spectrum. And then the cops who there's a hilarious scene where they send him down to try to get Avon Barksdale's picture from the housing authority that takes picture of everybody. And they come back with like a middle-aged white guy. Right. And like the more, in, the more dangerous your job is and the more of the more in danger you are from not doing your job, the better you will be or you will not survive. Right. The cops are on the other end of that spectrum where they can do whatever the hell they want. They're never going to lose their jobs. Right. Omar Little, if he's that sloppy, he's dead. And so, uh, yeah, so that that introduces just kind of this this new character that's just one of my favorite all timers to, to wrap it up, my man. What are uh, your first impressions of Omar Little at this point? Just. Already you can tell that he is a step ahead of everyone and everything, right? And so he is seeing the angles. You had mentioned earlier that he is staking them out for a while now. This isn't just like he rolls up on them and decides he's going to steal their stash. Right. It, it is implied that he has been watching them. He's that been he hunting continues them. To mm-hmm. wa- yep. Yes, it, and he continues to watch them. It does not surprise me that he is one of your favorite characters because on some level, when he is out there doing his own surveillance, I could imagine it's very much like you watching Tate, right? <laughs> and so when Omar is muttering, oh, 
quite sloppy right there. I would imagine that that's you shaking your head when <laughs> a big man comes and takes the wrong angle to set some some flare screen to free up Danny Green to sure. go to to the corner. You're just like, ah, that's sloppy JaVale <laughs> McGee. So anyways, Omar is clearly a step ahead of everyone. He has clearly done his homework and he clearly lives in this environment and from moment to moment where he understands his position within the game and what he's going to get out of it, right? And he is not afraid to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish whatever his mission is. And as we get further in to this season and then the series at large, that to me is going to be one of the major themes that you return to time after time after time with him as a character. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this was fun. This is fun. And we're starting to get into the thick of the the first season. Uh, great, great show, timeless show that there's so much meat on the bone that I catch. This is my, yeah, my third rewatch. So it's a it's something I, it's a show I catch something new every time and appreciate for different reasons. Every time when I uh, was thinking of the pawns earlier, I was thinking of the, uh, you know, our nurses and doctors and people on the front lines with everything that's going on right now. And uh, let's not, you know, treat them as disposable, um, even though they're on, on those front lines. So uh, yeah, yeah, we'll be getting into plenty more of this. We'll probably answer some more of your questions. We'll be doing this a little more frequently. Uh, we had a little bit of a, a short hiatus. We should be back to two a week uh, coming up now. So uh, until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We will catch you guys next time. Ainge has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires, it's good, and the Lakers win the game! The Lakers win the game! Gamble in and out, the ball is tipped, and it's saved. Three seconds left, here's Van Exel. This is for the win, he got it! Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. An amazing performance by Kobe. With his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance in Boston. Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I know Red Arbach is uh, rolling over. Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? How strong was that? A triple and a fall away in the corner with a shot clock down. Lakers by three. Ryan spinning in the lane, back for Gasol, pretty pass, and it's back to a three-point game. And the critical part was Pietras jogging back, didn't bounce the floor. It's a two-for-one situation. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two, one, missing. Unbelievable. Bryant, yes. And that was a little tough to Alvin Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me?